You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is an interview recorded live at Bob and Misbehaves Bookshop this August as part of the Edinburgh Fringe. It gives me enormous pleasure to bring you an interview with someone I've wanted to get onto the show for a very long time. This is the brilliant Josie Long. Hello, thank you so much. Hi. Um, thanks for coming. I've just got to apologise for the fact that my stool appears to be hydraulic, so I sat on it and suddenly went lower than you are. But it's, I'll look up to you. It makes me feel good about myself. <laughs> so, listen, I'd normally, ask by, I'd normally start by asking how the show is going, but before we start, I would like to uh, point out that... I just like, On the way here, I remembered uh, when you beat me by half a grape... At uh, the Taskmaster in uh, 2012. Yeah, I think it was 100% took you down. You fucking took me down. Will? You had to see how many grapes you could fit into your mouth. This is and the culmination a of a year-long lady. competition. Yeah, are we? Yes. Yeah. Did I win the whole thing? Yes, you won the whole yes, thing, won the whole thing because, because a grape fell down the back of my throat as I was oh, nonchalantly... My prize was Tim Key's Perrier Award. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my brain. But then on the way out, they were like, oh, you can't keep it. And yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> he sort of said, yeah, we had, to, the, we had to send in the most valuable thing we owned. That was challenge one in, in like, yeah. September. And, that, and, then, and everything would become the, the prize pot. And Tim yeah. sent in his Perrier Award. Yeah. And then at the time, he said, if you, if you do win, I mean, I haven't got any nice things. And he sort of made a little <laughs> sort of defence for it. But uh, did you give it back in the end? Yeah, I Fine, did. that's all I wanted to know. But another year, I did mistakenly take a Best Newcomer nominee award... Just kept it. <laughs> and I've got it on a shelf. I've got a shelf of, like, if I've ever got trophies, I'll put it on the tra- shelf. And I've kept it because it makes me look better than I am, more successful. So you, you were nominated for Newcomer, or you won Newcomer. I did, but then... Um, but you, that one later. award wasn't enough. But this is a few years afterwards. I just happened... To, I was there for getting nominated for another award, and okay. I just took two. Fuck them. <laughs> Well, already, already we're seeing the dark underbelly no. of Josie Long. <laughs> I, I actually thief. took the wrong one, and then I wrote to them and was like, I, I didn't take the right one. And then they, so they sent me another one. Just, this is so boring, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all, my fault. Now, um, let's start with the, the show. How's it going? Um, I, it's really intense. It's never less intense. Every year I think oh, this year I'm going to really fucking eliminate all the stress. And like, so I thought it was, basically, I got here, I did my first three shows and they were really great fun. I was so excited. And I was like, this is the best fringe ever. This is literally the best fringe of my life. And then my fourth show was really shit. And I was like, oh, it's just normal fringe. fringe." So I think it's just quite a classic fringe run insofar as I really love performing the shows most of the time. But then maybe one in every four, I feel... 
heartbroken or like there's something wrong or like I can't do it anymore or something Because like of that. the show or because of the stress of being at the Edinburgh Festival? Yeah, I think the stress gets to me sometimes. But I try really hard to mitigate it. Like I work out a lot and I... You can tell uh, to look at me. I work out a lot and I do a lot of... Um, sort of looking after myself and cooking and I go home early quite a lot. Like, I do a really mm. slow run-up to the last week. But um, I think it's going away. I should... I've sort of loved... My, this, I can't make it sound interesting. I've loved most no, of it. No, 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 it. it's already and interesting. Then... And don't freak out that people aren't laughing. There's oh, no. lots of comics here and go, this is, this is weird, normally later on than, than this oh. is happening. But, uh, but don't panic. <laughs> we're, we're all... This is exactly what okay. we want. Take I have a theory about Edinburgh, which is that I enjoy it more than a lot of my friends do. Mm-hmm. Because I think I, on the whole, enjoy the shows most of the time and find it less stressful. Because I like to have this policy, which is where I like, don't read reviews, don't look at reviews, don't talk about reviews, avoid people. I have like a little list of people in the back of my head who are like comedians that I think, if I run into you, I will be nice to you, but our conversations will be under 30 seconds. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I have a lot of that. Like, And especially I sort of avoid it when you bump into people and they're like, hey, how's your show? My show's like this. I'm like, I've just been swimming. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more zen than you. <laughs> so I try really hard to do that. Um, but then I'm such a fucking prick because then I all say that. And like to all my friends that I share the flat with, I'm like, guys, you know, we're just going to keep the house review free and, like, just be cool, like, because I've been doing this for, like, a long time, so you should be cool. And then I fucking, the other day, I looked at the reviews of my show and I found the one review where someone was being a real dick about it and it got under my skin and I was upset for, like, three days. Mm. So um, nobody is good at the fringe. Nobody is, like, good at not being affected by it. Where does this show exist? Where are we in the life of this show? This is, is it, are you doing Edinburgh before you then take the show on tour? Yeah, hopefully. And have you brought it from anywhere else? Did you do it no. at other festivals on the way here? No, I, I did. I, I sort of, normally when I'm writing my shows, I, in about May, go and do a preview, do a splurge. It's an hour long. And then I tend to just transcribe that and then, then it'll be done. <laughs> like, okay. it'll not be done, but like I'll work on it over like three okay. months. What, then, what do you mean by do a splurge? Stuff that you never tried anywhere else? Just stuff that you've just written and you turn up and do all of it? Or bits and bobs that you've done in other... I sort of, what I, what I do, like to start writing a show, is I'll get an A3 piece of paper and I'll do a spider diagram of all the things that I am interested in, that I think I'd like to write about, bits of material that I've already got that I know sort of I quite like to do, ideas for jokes, sort of any sort of things that preoccupy me, and I make this big chart, and then I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's, that's got to be half of it done. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> if I can t- turn this into post-it yeah. notes on a wall, I'm there. I'm there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I go and I do my first preview, and I just try and like do it in whatever order feels natural. And then, then hopefully it feels like it's up and running. And what's been quite odd is every time I've ever done that, it does start at an hour. Like, it okay. always just feels, seems to be an hour. Like, I've never, ever done a show where I've underrun or I've underwritten. It's always, like, worse. It's like, I'm too proud to cut it and it's too long. Okay. And stuff. Um, but this year, I sort of started doing really tentative warm-ups in January where I was saying to myself, like, I want this show to develop in, like, a less pressured way. I want it to sort of unfurl. So I would just do the preview, record it, listen to it again, but not try and consciously make any notes about it. Then the next day, do the preview again. So I did three in January where I was trying really hard to sort of take my foot off the pedal and just see what came out. Mm. And then I just sort of ended up doing one in March, a couple in April, a couple in May, and then basically spending all of June and July properly writing it. 
And how has that, that process differed from what, what do you normally do if you're not unfurling? What's the, what's the pressure? I mean, this is... Well, uh, what because, num- yeah. Go on. Oh, sorry. It's my seventh show. Yeah, and okay. Normally what I've done in the past is I do the show, I take it to sort of Soho Theatre or something in the autumn. Then in January, February, March, I go and tour it in the UK. And then hopefully I'll go to like Australia, New Zealand and America or something. And so by the, I, I tend to finish the show by... I've finished the last show, sort of April, May. Okay. And so then at May, you have to start the next one. Okay, so, so you're not writing, you're not starting writing the next show whilst you're on tour, but you're having the experiences that will probably end yeah. up in it. Yeah, it's not conscious. I find it really, really hard to be writing one thing while doing another. Um, but I do sort of, I keep a journal that's like, my pathetic feelings. <laughs> and I sort of try and keep a, abreast of that. And I also like, really do believe in like, trying to do lifelong learning and trying to sort of, pursue little academic pursuits and really sort of mine what you're passionate about so while I'm doing that I do kind of take notes and stuff like that and hope that at the back of my I sort of have this very superstitious thing that like you're always working you're always brewing so you're fine to go swimming in the afternoons and not sit and write because it's all going on in the back of your head and then I sort of in May, we'll start in earnest, like, complete focus on it. OK. So let's talk about how you, how you first started. I'm sure this is something you've talked about in lots of interviews before. And I, know, I think all, all I know about your origins as a comic is that you were the youngest person ever to win, which, the BBC? Oh, yeah, yeah. New talent. And yeah. the, the beautifully PR-friendly story is that at 17, you were too young to drink the winner's bottle of champagne. Yeah, still didn't it. Yeah, yeah. From Orpington. The better thing that happened was on that night, I um, I got really drunk, like absolutely wasted, because they got me a crate of Bacardi Breezes, because I was a 17-year-old girl, and there were no other 17-year-old girls in the final. So it was just all mine. And I gunned it, because I was like, well, I'm not going to win, I'm fucking an idiot. And then Bob Monkhouse is there, and he was like, you must sober up, because you might have to go back out there. And I was like, whatever. And then he was like, go into my dressing room, and he had this big platter of fruit, and he was like, you must eat all of the fruit. (laughs) And he was like, stuff myself with fruit, and then, yeah, I won it. Well, I've I've realised that this year I've been doing gigging, proper gigging, like stand-up gigs, for half my life. So I started... Doing pro- well, I actually did my first real gig that because there was an art centre near me, and for my fourteenth birthday, my mum put me on this comedy course, which I'm really amazed that like she saw that I would like it. Like I was obsessed with TV comedy, and I liked showing off and performing at school and stuff. But I would never have thought, oh, I should be a stand-up comedian or anything mm. like that. And then, so from when I was just fourteen, I started going to this workshop where we would like perform for one another and. Um, where sort of a few other people who work as comedians did go on it. As who, well. el- who else was there? Because I'm not. I'm only. I've only heard very recently of stand-up comedy being taught to young people through places like the Comedy Club for Kids. Yeah, but it was. It was an Academy. adult thing. It was oh me. wow! Okay. It was me, and then it was like I shouldn't have been allowed on it. It was 18 plus. Okay. And it would be me, and then it would be everyone else would be kind of. There was sort of very odd guys in their 30s who wrote like really laboured puns and there was a friend of mine who when I met her she was 36 and I was 14 and now she's still my friend and she's sort of looked out for me my whole life and been like a surrogate okay. adult and, and the guy who ran the course was 27 and I was 14 and I remember thinking that guy he's so old he's so old. <laughs> and now I realise he was stoned the whole time because <laughs> he was very laid back and he'd be like you just need to think about your persona. And then he would go off for a cigarette and come back. And at the time, I was just like, that guy's my... And he's really great. And he, to be fair, he looked after me as well, because I was sort of a bit... had sort of an odd situation at home where 
like I didn't really sort of go there that much. So I thought it was nice to have like surrogate parents and stuff. And I, I started doing that, did like stand up in front of the people at the workshop. And then I did my first real gig when I was 15. And it was at the East Dallas Tavern upstairs. And also it was new acts and new material. Okay. So also This is the, build, the, original, the original one. That's yeah, not the When it was run by, no. yeah, sure. Okay, when it was run by Ron and Emma. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And, right, on that bill, as well as me, were Joe Brand and Harry Hill. <laughs> my first gig. <laughs> And I was just like, oh, oh, and I don't remember any of it. I do remember that the compere was really nice about me afterwards. Okay. And I remember that like, I didn't meet Joe Brand or Harry Hill. Okay. And I was a bit like pissed off that I didn't get to say hi to them. But that as a teenager, I could then go back to school and be like, yeah, I keep with Joe Brand and Harry Hill. It's not a big deal. Um, which is good. And then I took a break from my GCSEs. And then I started again when I was 16. And okay. sort of gigged. Not that regularly, maybe kind of once a fortnight. Do you remember what the material was? Do you remember your opening line from yeah. the first... What was your opener? I used to go on and I used a really stony face. I would go, hello, my name is Frank LeBeuf and I play for Chelsea football team. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was like the funniest thing in the world because obviously I was a 14-year-old girl and I was like, this is brilliant. And, um, it was never that successful. Because then at the end I'd be like, I thought that would work and it didn't work um, but it was always like really silly stuff like nothing to do with my life okay and were, but were they were they joke jokes that you'd constructed that you'd written or was I it sort I of silliness and okay it was quite surreal like surreal it was quite deliberately absurdist so like I would do a bit that was like a really long dream sequence bit with like a pull back and reveal punchline at the end that like yeah. I was asleep all the time or like I would um I did this bit for ages where I would just come on and do but bear in mind this is like 16 years ago because I'm sure lots of people have done it since but I'd be like my wife she's so fat she's in danger of dying it's so sad I love her so much and I'd just do that for ages but not explain why I was doing it just do that in that voice for ages and then be like oh so I like doing a lot of farming so it would always be like <laughs> absurd things that I obviously didn't was do. It, and was that what gave you the confidence to do something so unusual? Was that from the from the class, or um, was it the, sort of like an instinct that you had yourself that you like most people? I think when they start a you know their first ever gig, however old they are, they'll think, okay, the opening joke has got to be an opening joke with a feed line and a punchline. Well, it was a joke. I was like, <laughs> it's very funny because I'm not a footballer, but I'm saying I'm a footballer. <laughs> And I'm a 14-year-old girl. Um, I think, I tell you what it was, I, the things that I grew up really, really loving were Monty Python, Vic and Bob, and, like, Harry Hill. Mm. So, to me, I was like, oh, you can just do whatever you want and just be silly. And I think because the atmosphere was so supportive in the little workshops, and the way he did it was he was, like, so non-prescriptive. It wasn't like a class. He was just like, think of five things you think are funny and try and do them in a way that conveys it properly. Okay. And that was it. And then he'd be like, you've got to find your own voice. And at that time, like, it's funny to look back because I guess I just didn't really have anything to say or the only thing that was going on in my life that was, like, big life experience was, like, situations with my family that were quite difficult. So I couldn't really go on stage and be like, mm, you know, when your stepdad's a real cunt, you're like, ah. You know, so, like, and you couldn't be like, you know, when school, you know, school, you know. You <laughs> do, and also at the time as well, when I was 17 and I won the BBC, there was a girl who I should say is no longer a comedian... <laughs> who was 17 as well, and she won the Young Comedian of the Year Award, and I remember being really fucking pissed off, which is so vain and egotistical even then, that she had a spread in a newspaper that said, I'm Britain's funniest teenager, and I was like, I'm going to fucking get that girl. <laughs> she, is not, 
And, and I didn't like it because her dad wrote all her material. And one of her jokes I can still remember was, oh, well, it's not my fault. I support Aston Villa. And they think tactics is a brand of mint. And I was like, hack. <laughs> and she went on stage wearing a sparkly hat and braces and I was like I, would, I think in my head when I was young I was like I want to be a real comedian I don't want to be like a novelty children comedian yeah yeah the first time the first time we gigged together was in Andy Bones gig in Gypsy Hill I remember that. and you did material about uh, a Japanese toad god yeah. Do you remember that? Netsuke, yeah. That was Netsuke, Gam- there we go. It's Gam- Gamerson in with his toad. That's yes, what it was. Yes. It was because in the British Museum there are like these little things called Netsuke, which are basically key rings that have survived for a thousand years. And it blew my mind that like because I was like, it's like Fido Dido surviving for a thousand years. It was like this is what is left of their culture, is the key rings. And then I was reading them all and they were all really interesting. And then one of them just and they had long descriptions, so they were like the god of fire who would come down ceremonially once a year and then one of them just said Gamma Sinin with his toad like we'd all be like oh yeah Gamma Sinin with his toad of course with his toad it makes perfect sense I just at the time and I was into the kind of the absurdism of Reeves and Mortimer and Harry Hill and that kind of stuff but when I saw you doing that gig I was properly like this, is, this isn't like anything else I don't know that I don't know that anyone on that night any of us had a particularly good gig but I was sort of watching you going you can do this. <laughs> but by that point, I would, I would sort of say that I'd changed what I was doing from... Because when I was, like, 17 to about 20, I did stuff that was just, like, proper silly all the time. And then after I left uni, I started up again in earnest. And then between 21 and about 23, I sort of tried to move my material to, like... I'd go a lot to galleries and read a lot and just try and do stuff that I thought would be a little bit more out of the ordinary on, like, the open mic what, scene. What inspired that choice? Was it just the fact of gigging with open micers and f- recognising the same tropes? Um, I think a little bit I wanted to not be hack. It was, like, a little thing that me and my friends were like, fuck, hack comics, we're not like that shit. We want to do experimental stuff. But I think also it was, like, a hangover from university. Like, I really loved learning to research. And while I was there, I, for my finals, did a lot of, like, really going off piste researching about like weird chat books which are like old-fashioned take a break and like researching about really obscure kind of literary forgeries and stuff like that and I just really liked going off and kind of exploring a little thing on my own and Mm. I do really like going to galleries and I think it's sort of like an aesthetic thing but it was also just like that's what I was interested in I wanted to sort of present things enthusiastically as opposed to just be like you know when you're fucking drinking an energy drink and you're fucking you know for, I know. I think I speak for us all. We're, we're desperate for you to finish that thought. I'd love to hear you do an observational, st- a sweary observational routine about <laughs> energy drinks. Fucking, you have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, that happened to me the last time I drank Red Bulls. Is I thought I was going to die and had to go and lie down in a static caravan. <laughs> Very sad. When do, do you think that your persona is the same now as it was when you started out? No, definitely not. Because I think then it was a persona. It was like, I was very nervous and I would just sort of like be very like, oh, I'm going to do stuff. And now I feel, hopefully, that I'm in a position where I've done it for so long that most of the time when I get on stage, I can be like a sort of exacerbated version of myself. But I try really hard to sort of be really honest and be really open and try and make myself a bit vulnerable. And, and also just try and like, my dream way of like doing stand-up is to find all my best in-jokes with my friends and ways that I muck about and use the sort of comic tropes that I have in my life mm. and then bring them to stage a bit. And then also kind of now, I think, luckily, the last sort of 
well, I would say ever since I've done solo shows, but definitely in the last like four years, I've been able to write about things that I really feel passionate about that maybe have some edge to them. So write a little bit more where I'm like, no, that is wrong and that is a bad thing and I'm angry about that, as opposed mm. to just like when I was young, it was just like silly, silly, silly. And then when I was 24 and I did my first solo show, I tried really hard to write only about positive things. I wanted mm. to do yeah, a I show that was that quite, one, yeah. quite like deliberately, pointedly, aggressively not cynical. Um, whereas I think now I've got a little bit more light and shade. It's Josie Long, everyone. She's an incredible comic, a gifted joke writer. She's also an absolute ray of sunshine. The last five minutes of this interview have inspired me to maybe make a collection of all the inspiring bits of all the episodes so far and set them to music, maybe as like an emergency episode to be used after bad gigs. In case of emergency, break glass, listen to MP3, something like that. She is relentless in the best possible way. Uh, Absolutely delightful to talk to. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did recording it. So uh, just a couple of things and we'll get straight back in. Last call about the next live ComCom special with the fabulous Tom Stade. I was about to say brilliant and I realised I've overused brilliant recently with the fabulous uh, Tom Stade absolutely superb comedian um, lives in Edinburgh and uh, travels all over the country all over the world we're doing him in Wolverhampton uh, this coming Monday the 22nd of September so get yourself there the Arena Theatre Wolverhampton details are on their website and also up at ComComPod on Twitter and in the Facebook page tickets are only £5 see you there uh, just a couple of thanks uh, to some people who've donated recently. Um, I thought it'd be nice. There is a space for you to leave a little message when you donate, and some people use that. So I just thought I'd read out a few of those. Luke Finley says, thanks for the podcast. I'm not a comic, but I'm interested in the mechanics of comedy. I'm donating one pound for every one I've listened to. And then he adds rather ominously, dot, 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 for now. Thank you, Luke. Uh, much appreciated. Roger Clark sent me three quid and says, bish, that's for Nick Doody. That's the kind of immediate transaction that is a, a former street performer I quite enjoy. A friend of mine once said, um, uh, a street performing buddy of mine called Conrad Riverland, lovely guy. Uh, he said that the ultimate logical extension of street performing would be to go into a shop, do a handstand and be given a tin of beans. So three quid, bish, that's for Nick Doody. That's uh, very kind of you and much in keeping with my uh, the way in which I see the world. Thank you, Roger. Uh, I, I lost your other email. I know you've donated before, but uh, many thanks for those donations. Alison Turner says, here's 10 quid for all the brilliant episodes I've listened to and the extra two pounds. Good work, Alison. And I got a very generous donation from David McCluskey, who says, thanks for the 90 episodes. I met, uh, uh, met you at the Pleasance this year and said how much I was enjoying the podcast, but I think that Phil Jupitus and Bridget Christie are perhaps two of the best. Thank you very much, David. I'm very proud of those episodes. So thanks to all of you. Really appreciate the love you're showing for the show, whether it's two quid or 20 quid or a pound a show. It's all going to be very useful in a very tangible way quite soon. I'll say no more for now. Um, I referred to this loosely last week, but I've got some pretty big plans on the horizon and your continuing support is very, very useful. Remember, of course, if you don't want to donate, you can support the show by telling someone new about it tweet me at comcompod email me info at comedianscomedian.com and let's get back to the wonderful josie long and do you think given that you were so young given that you were discovering who you were as a as a person as a teenager and then someone in their in their late in their early 20s do you think there was kind of an interplay between your who you were on stage i suppose what i'm asking is um if your discovering who you are on stage is that happening at the same time as you discover who you are as a person yeah definitely like I do feel really weird I feel like one of those I've said it before but I feel like one of those people who are like 
they get married at 16 and then when they're 50 they're like I can't leave he owns the house you know <laughs> and that's how I feel with stand-up like it's just so much a part of everything to me like I I love it and I don't see it as separate from me I see it as like without it I'm not m- m- me like I like I just feel like it has been the way that I've processed the world processed my life thought about things it like gives me something like it balances me out and it makes me feel more sane and less annoying at parties because I've got an outlet it it just sort of I feel like I have grown up with it and it's how I like I keep my feelings journal for myself but then I just pillage it for my shows like there's very little distinction between kind of what I've done and what like I feel like with my stand-up I'm creating this little body of work that belongs to just me that I'm proud of that I sort of reassure myself that I'm alive and that it's all right and that I've done something with my life and it yeah it helps me make sense of the world and definitely helped me grow up I think and yeah. what are the, what are the other things when you say you had a show in 2004 that was aggressively uncynical yeah are there are there other kind of like like that's almost like a meta job of the show like the first yeah. job is you've got to make people laugh people got to buy tickets all the rest of it and then there's kind of other layers of of intention behind it yeah so what are some of the other intentions of Shows that I've done. Yeah. Uh, well, the first show and the first few shows I did, I liked having an art project alongside the show. Mm-hmm. So the first show I did, I got everyone to tell me a small good thing that they liked and I collected them all and I sort of put them on the walls and I made a fanzine out of it. And then the second one, I got people to... I gave out these postcards that were blank postcards and then people had to find an eccentric person they really admired and then draw them and send them back to me. So I had like, this big archive of the postcards. And then the third show I did had a museum where I wanted people to give me items that they'd found or something. I can't remember anymore. That's bad. But it was apart a museum from, of lost items, I think. Apart from the... Obviously, those, oh, are, those are kind of format, the projects. structures of the show, art, art projects. But what was... Like, why? Why was it that you that you wanted to receive stuff from other people? Because you've always been really creative and you've always given things away. I've still got one of your badges that says 6 out of 10. Oh, my God, yeah. that's really <laughs> old. Yeah, 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 so it looks like I used to spend hours and hours rooms, making, making badges by hand for my shows to give out to people, which is full on. Yeah. yeah it was in the video room. Oh, I tell you, so I know what you mean. Like, I think, basically, I do tend to sort of have a thing that I'm trying to convey to people on the whole. And what I like, and one of the reasons I wanted to start doing tours just straight after having done my first show was because I like the idea of linking up with creative people around the country and, like, collaborating a little bit and just finding people. Like, I was really, like, I want to find the people in Leeds and Leicester who also like what I like and like comic books or, like, want to do zines or stuff like that. So there's an element of trying to coax people out into sort of sharing things with me creatively and Mm. finding out stuff like that. Uh, and that's been part of it. And also, so the first show was kind of about celebrating DIY culture that I really love kind of this idea of like make your own club, set your own thing up, do your own thing. And so I wanted to kind of see if I could like judge anyone into doing that or find other people who like that. And then, so a lot of, I think a lot of my motivation is to find like-minded people and then have fun times. Um, and then the second show I did was about eccentricity and about kind of being unabashed about that. And so I wanted to kind of put that out there. And the third show I did was about lifelong learning and about wanting to sort of inspire like a broad Renaissance-style creativity. And then with the last, the three shows that I did with it, I did three shows that were about politics. And with those, genuinely, what I secretly wanted to do was like stoke up people who were better people than me into doing more political activism and okay. like murdering the government, which still hasn't happened, which is a shame, but um, <laughs> like... 
I genuinely... that's, that's a really interesting kind of like, if, if you're sort of thinking, well, maybe I myself wouldn't be a great politician, but if I can deliberately inspire someone yeah. that would be, that would make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. That's like a really rational kind of, it's almost like a MacGyver approach to politics. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to use what I've got. And in your case, what you've got is lots and lots of people who follow you creatively and want to join in with things. Yeah. You go, hey, why don't we all join in with burning Brainwash down? Brainwash them. Yeah. <laughs> but I do talk about like how it's like making sleeper cells of socialists <laughs> who are like ready to... But I, I've, it was more for me as well with the politics stuff. I did honestly feel like when I first started talking about it, I just felt this responsibility, like this weird thing that was like, if I don't talk about this, I won't be able to look myself in the eye later on. I, I'll feel like I let myself down by not speaking out against something I, mm. I don't know it just felt like this really intense urge and then the second year I did it I really just wanted to find people who felt how I felt who felt really beaten down and felt really despairing and freaked out and hated what the coalition are doing and just say to them like you're not alone and you're not mad and you're right and the vast majority of like the media is against you and you'll constantly come up against people trying to pick you apart and shout you down but I want this to be supportive for you. And, like, got people being like, oh, it's preaching to the choir. And I was like, yes, because they need it. Like, they need mm. someone to be like, I'm, you're not alone. It's going to be all right. I don't really care about converting people at that stage. And then last show, I just wanted to get girls. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't help it. It was, like, the obvious thing to say. Um, the last show, this show, I just... Um, I don't know. I thought I wanted to write something personal because I realised that I'd never written, tried to write a show about love or about how I felt. And I weirdly just really wanted to talk about things with my family and my sister. And I've ended up not saying as much as I thought I was going to, but I just think I wanted to just to sort of help me get over it finally. Like, I think when yeah. things are a bit tricky in your childhood, like, you spend a lot of time working it through. And I, d I don't know. I thought it could be an act of, like, drawing a line and starting afresh or something. I think it's definitely I mean I, it's, it's I found it your most enjoyable show and I've enjoyed all of it really? yeah Thank yeah you. absolutely because I think part of what really what I really love about it is that I think it's a more mature you I think there's loads of you laughing at yourself and like when you're talking about you know oh what I like doing is a load of sub Amelie shit do you know what I mean that kind of that yeah it's fair. <laughs> these are your words they're your words <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm accusing you of that but I think you're the you obviously got tagged with the whimsy, like being the queen of whimsy, the person that started or... That blows you know. my mind, that, because, like, what I see it as is people who didn't see your show need to sum you up in about five words. Sure, So that's they pick a word, true, yeah. and then people who didn't even see that see that and then decide it, but... I but you did... Feel... I think you spearheaded, whether intentionally or not, a lot of people doing graphs. Yeah, maybe, but I didn't mean to. No, I, just I know, you were I making badges. Because yeah. I fucking start, well, it started, but I was doing it on my own steam. I think um, there was like... And I'm not, and I don't mean at all, if there's anyone listening to this who has done I like graphs. graphs. I like graphs as well. And I, I think it's more to do, it's less to do with people copying you than people going, oh, I can actually do, I can pursue... Do anything I want. Yeah, I can do anything I want. Whatever I think is funny is, is fine. That's know? what I love about the fringes. Every time I approach it, I think, the room is mine. I can do literally anything with it. If I want to have... And to be fair, all I'm doing is just chatting this time. But like, if I want to put up posters, if I want to completely change the setup, if I want to hide things, if I want to, you know, invite people in as they're coming in, if I want to stand in the crowd, I can really rethink. It doesn't just have to be one person getting up, doing an hour of stuff and leaving. It can be anything mm. in there. And I like that sort of theatricalness. But I also think, I saw it as like there was a little movement of us, or there was a big group of us that I was really proud of who were like all quite DIY. Yeah. Like we ran a lot of gigs and we would try and put on strange events and we would sort of, 
just try and see how we could do things our own way. And like when I first started touring, I really felt that because I was it was just basically me and my old manager like trying to hustle, like setting up like new gigs at new weird venues and like mm. just trying to kind of do things a different way. And like Robin Ince, especially like ten years ago, I feel like there was a lot of people who had to work really hard to kind of just create a bit of space for there to be weirder stuff and and more sensitive stuff or whatever. And I felt like I was past that part of that and. It's funny when, like, because whimsical in itself is not a derogatory term, but I think a lot of people who maybe never really got what I was doing or just hated me and thought I was shit wanted to, like, whimsy, it rhymes with flimsy. It makes it seem <laughs> like what you're doing is insubstantial and shit and not sure. proper jokes. And it's always upset me, like, if I've ever used to get reviews that were like, it's nice, but it's not funny, it's nice. And I'd be like, fuck you, to my mind, this is, like, the funniest possible thing in the world. So it's nice for me to sort of feel like, at least I'm getting practiced in doing this. Yeah. So then even people who hate me have to be like, like I got a review the other year of this guy who for 10 years has always thought I was shit. And he gave me like the best reviews ever given me, which was basically, I still don't like it, but you've got to admit she's been doing it a long time. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, can. I'm going to keep doing it. And I think with a lot of things like that, like, just staying in the game is so useful. Like, just putting in hours and hours of stage time, you just get better at being who you are and stronger at being who you are. And, like... Do you, do you find, given that you went, like... I think from the outside, it's probably easy to go, oh, you know, incredibly talented, charmed life, oh, one competition. Charmed you, life. No, 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 I think... Yeah, no, I, I, well, this is what I want to talk about. would think about me? I, That's I, hilarious. I think you're so good at what you do, and what you do has been so embraced by your audience, you're obviously very, very successful for someone of your age. I mean, you've been going a long time, admittedly, but... I wonder whether you feel like that. Obviously no, not. But, but like, I think from the outside, do you see what I mean? Do you see how someone could go, everything she touches is interesting and loved and warmly embraced oh, by people? That doesn't feel like that at all. Like, I've had, like... God, that's crazy. Like, also, like, I'm not, like, a big comedian. Like, I don't own... I can't buy a house. Not that that's important, but, like, I don't earn a lot of money. I'm not, like... Like, to me, like, successful people are people who are, like, always on TV with their own show. Not that I even think I've... I don't know if I would want that anyway, but, like... So this is why it's obviously not the case. But, like, I, I would not see myself like that. Like, I I think... I don't know. Like, I think I've sort of been doing my own little thing. And I've been very, very lucky in as because we started touring early. And I feel like that was sort of, like, quite an audacious thing to do but because we did that and the first tour I did was actually quite difficult and the second one wasn't that easy but now I've done six I do feel really lucky in a position where I just do my shows and I love it and I have loads of people who come like and I look like I really treasure that you know and I don't have to do gigs that I don't want to do and I never ever say yes to things that I don't think would be sort of in keeping with my personal brand. Um, (laughs) But, like, I don't want to sort of compromise my integrity or anything like that, or what I see as my integrity. And, like... But I feel like it's never been, like, a free ride. Like, there's always been loads of, like, critics who thought I was shit or, like, I I sort of feel like I'm not a proper comedian because I don't do proper comedian clubs and I never can. Do you you feel like that? Yeah, I I was talking to John Kearns last night in the bar... And I was having just seen his show, his second show, equally brilliant as the first one. Absolutely love it. And he um, he was saying that about me. He was like, "Well, you're you're proper. You know, I'd love to be able to be that thing where you turn up and you're everyone's mate and you do jokes and stuff." And I was going, "Are you mental? Do you know what I mean? Because I think everyone on whichever side of that spectrum that they're on, 
well, I don't know. I mean, does everyone covet the other thing? Do you want to be able to do, like, to sort of, you know, fight your way through hen nights at a, at a weekend gig? To be fair, no, I absolutely do not. I love what I do. I, and I don't feel like I'd like to be doing anything differently to how I do. That's not true. But I don't... I don't know. Like, I, I had this really weird time after my first show... I see I feel a little bit like in some ways I've got some sort of weird frontier shtick frontier stuff yes because I was a little bit precocious compared to a lot of my peers because I started younger there's a lot of things that I sort of encountered all on my own like weirdly and so like after my first show I was so innocent with it and it's it makes me sad because like I was so thrilled just to be doing a show like finally it was the happiest month really it was the happiest fringe I've ever had because I was just so happy to have an hour to myself, have the room to myself, set up my art projects, like, and I got good reviews and I was reading them and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it, it's amazing. And then I did a show for ITV2 where all the nominees for Best Newcomer were interviewed and I did an interview, which I thought was perfectly acceptable. I was like, they asked me something and I said in a voice, I sort of went, well, you know, I quite like it, but I'm not like, do you know what I mean? Right, and they cut that and they put that in the show. And then like, there was like, there's this comedy forum that went like ballistic in its hatred of me, like crazy in how much it hated me. And it would put like videos on YouTube to slag me off. And like, it just was like super intense trolling of me. Like it was In a, in a time kind of when trolling was first yeah, coming I did it into existence. It cool. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really... Well, I think, but that's it. Like you people now, I think, are used to the idea that the internet is full of pricks and they can attack you. Yeah. But you or presumably weren't so ready like There's lots that. of women around and everyone says it in the open and you go, yeah, that's unacceptable. And the people who'd been really fucking creepy about me were the ones who were the Mary Beard ones who were unmasked. And I remember there was a newspaper article this year where I saw a photo of one of these people who'd been so disgusting to me for years. And it was so weird to see him and be like, ha, you live in Sidcup and you're an estate agent. <laughs> but um, it, that, that was a thing that I sort of, if anyone would be like, oh, you're the charmed life, like, I would think about that because that like, for about a year and a half, it like knocked me off my course because I just, whenever I went on stage, I'd be thinking, oh yeah, which one person here is going to take this to put on a comedy forum so everyone can slack me off? Like who here is going to say they're going to like rape me or fucking kill me or whatever, you know, and stuff like that. And so it was like such a weird experience. And because I didn't know anyone else, it was like pre-Twitter, I guess. Twitter's like changing my life. When before Twitter, I, um, I just sort of told a couple of my friends, but I just knew it was there. And every now and again, sort of someone would send me a link to it and I'd be like, oh, there's more of it. And like, it was sort of a weird thing to like have. I don't know why. I'm, that's quite self-pitying, me being like, oh, Jesus, no, it isn't. Easy? I'll tell you this. But, not um, at all, not at all. A weird I, thing, I'm but, constantly uh, staggered. I think I've mentioned this on the show before, that almost all of the female comics I know on Facebook have a secret identity name yeah. so that you can't be Googled, whereas none of the male comics I know no, feel no, the need to do that. And that is a really weird, entrenched, privileged thing, that none of, all my male peers are great, and none of them are arrogant about it or weird about it, but all my female friends who are comedians, we all know what it's like to get reviewers who they're middle-aged men and they're deliberately, or maybe not even deliberately, they just don't get what you do because their mm. life is so different to yours. Mm. And to get people kind of discussing your appearance in like really grim, grotesque ways, to get people sort of threatening to rape you, threatening to kill you. Like we've all had that shit over and over again. And like, it's such a weird thing. And then on top of that, obviously, since I was 16, I've had people questioning whether or not I'm allowed to do my job because I'm a woman, telling me that I'm not good at my job inadvertently because I'm a woman, like not booking me, you know, stuff like that. So it's, it's been a weird old thing to mm. sort of 
come through. It's, and now I think it is changed a little bit, and I think a few of us like feel better about it. You feel what the, the the abuse isn't there anymore, or that your attitude to it has changed such that I mean, you're talking about it incredibly frankly and sort of happily. You seem very kind of emotionally bulletproof about these awful things. I mean, I can't imagine anyone else going, "Oh, they threatened to rape me and kill me." And you sort of, you seem like you're totally over it. Yeah, I am definitely because I had it because I had I felt sad for, about it for a while for years, yeah. but I just sort of reached this point. It was quite nice, really, like to think like I sort of realised something about reviews and something about them, which was. I'm still doing what I love and it's not changed a thing mm. and it's not stopped me. And then I was like, ha, nothing's going to stop me ever. Like that. And that was like, ah, oh, fuck those cunts. Like, and I do feel a bit like glad to have got through it. Cause I feel like, ah, oh, like nothing, nothing could hurt me now. Like really, except, well, it will still hurt you, but like nothing will like disable you as a performer. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I would definitely say I'm over that. Which is quite nice. And now I have such a fun time with if people are abusive to me, I like enjoy thinking of new ways to try and troll them a bit. Like so just like my favourite thing is just writing unsubscribe because then they get really annoyed because they're like, <laughs> No, this isn't a list and I'm like, Yeah, yeah. And then and then also insinuating that they find me sexually attractive, they hate <laughs> anything. Um but yeah, it's a funny old thing. And it was always what was so weird was like my first show genuinely was about like you should try and see the small positives in life and, like, life is worth doing and try setting up your own things. And then to get, like, the amount of abuse I got from it, who we were like, this cunt should be raped and killed. Do you know what I mean? It was like, oh, guys, I think you're focusing in the wrong places here. <laughs> like, I'm a 24-year-old woman performing to between 11 and 45 people a night. Like, and yeah, so it was kind of funny. Let's, let's talk about the writing, um, uh, of the material do you feel that you've got like I mean I know you, you sort of say when you come to write a show and do you write specifically for shows now if you you don't need to write for for 20s or I mean any, no. anything you write gets turned into a show and yeah. ideally turned into a to be honest I've never written a proper club 20 since 19, 2005 was the last time I wrote okay. a club 20 and do you do you feel that you have like a, a sort of toolkit of things you'll do to an idea to try and find the funny in it uh yeah, I guess so, actually. I, I do a lot of, like, bashing ideas about where I, like, take a thing and I'll, like, try and spider diagram off it and see all the different, pun me, things that I think of when I'm thinking about that thing. But um, it's more that, like, what I like to do is I like to write via previews. So I'll have a thing that I know I want to say or, like, an idea, like, I know I want to use... And then I'll just try and improvise something. And if that fucks up, try something else and each new time and stuff like that. Okay. I, um, uh, do I have like a way of writing stuff? Beyond just like thinking around it, it's more like knowing the sort of thing that I want to write about and then giving it a go these days, I think. I think, I don't know. Okay. I feel like my brain's gone blank and that I'm not sure whether I know. Well, when you, like, just to, like, for example, not even, like, a joke, but, like, um, just to take an example, something that really made me laugh in your show, uh, one of the many things, was that you described, um, uh, I think it was possibly your uh, stepdad and mum or some adults in your life having a relationship based on intrigue. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like a, a euphemism Generously for... describe as full of intrigue. Yeah, absolutely. So something like that, is that just something that you'd say to a mate and you thought, oh, that's funny? Oh, or is, that, is, that, is that written out? Is, is it kind of, you know... That was a case of... oh Yeah, well, I do steal in-jokes that I have with my friends and family a lot. Like, I like to play games a lot. 
and then I do like to just steal them and use them in the show, definitely. And I do also kind of come up with, like, I'll have an idea for a bit and I'll try and, like, really bash that around. So, like, I've got this bit in my show where I talk about how the ghost of an old relationship sits on your shoulder and then when you forget about it, it comes out and it's like, you had it, but you squandered it. And I thought that, I just thought of that one line of like this thing going you heard it but you squandered it and so then I tried to like write a little play script version of that but with that line it was basically I knew that I wanted to say a few really serious things and I knew I'd have to try and gag it up a little bit so I just would like force myself in previews to be like just say something that's sort of a joke about this and like that came from writing shows about politics where I knew that there were serious things I wanted to say but I knew if I wrote one or two serious lines I would have to undercut it immediately to try and keep it flowing as a comedy show so then I would sort of so it was the same with that really it was like right I need to try and find a way to make me saying this funny but still convey the information that I want Mm. Um, and do you and is there when you talk about the politics stuff when you're writing political material what's the I mean obviously the starting points are your anger at a particular thing yeah so then what happens next in that if you come in and you go I'm annoyed about the coalition they've done a particular a particular thing has sort of got under your skin What's, what's the next step in terms of like trying to make that palatable to an audience that won't be bashing them over the head with... I've got a few te- techniques, right? One of them is that I always tend to try and make it a personal narrative so that I'm not preaching, but I'm just explaining how I felt at different particular points because of different gotcha. things I found out or experienced. So I try and like make it about the fact that I felt really weakened and depressed because that has happened or or I felt really thrilled and wonderful because we did this protest but then this, that, the other happened. So I try quite hard to structure a narrative of what's happening in the hope that people will sort of identify with it as opposed to feeling a bit like badgered. But then mm. sometimes there'll be things that I just desperately want to say on stage like, um, like in my show this year, I really want people to know that the new Olympic Park is not a public space. It's owned by the Qatari royal family. And so like, I was like, I need to get that in. So what I'll do is I'll get it in as part of a fantasy sequence where I can say it in a voice where I'm being a bit of a nerd, like, oh, I think you should find that this. Yes, okay. And then it sort of yeah. couches it, but I still get the information out there. Yes. And then also I like distractory technique so in 2011 I wrote a show that was about politics but I'd never really written a whole show about politics before so a lot of the time what I would do is I'd go I don't want to be doing this I have to tell you that the coalition are closing libraries because it's bullshit I would rather be talking about and then do five minutes about me swimming in the sea or something okay so that yeah. you're like dragging people back and quite often I, I do have a lot of like things that I don't mean to do and I guess they're like ticks but like silly voices or deliberately undercutting what I'm saying so like being like you know like I'd say something about like politics and then be like, am I right, ladies? You know, like for no yeah. reason. Or like, or, or be like, or be like, um, you know, the most important things is that we fight really hard and we don't take shit. And then I'd be like, and that's my motto for dancing. Or do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, okay. deliberately do something to sort of take you away and like lighten yes. it. And where, and where is that from? Where does that originate from? Is that you just discovering that when you're doing gigs where you're doing heavy, heavier-handed stuff a few years ago, mm. heavy-handed political stuff, and you're going... I mean, were you doing difficult gigs where you're going, I'm saying everything I want, but they're not laughing? I or think did that always bubble underneath it? It's sort of a couple of things. My first time doing shows, when I first started writing, I did like acting out little plays in it. Like, I really like doing silly things. Like, I've done, like, 
a, a thing where like, I imagine myself in a certain place and then I'm like, and then I said from this and they said this and I like doing characters and acting little bits. So there's always been a sort of thread that was quite theatrical in what I like to do. But on top of that, it was definitely the case that, especially in 2011 when I was doing this show, that I just fucking care about it so much and I felt so passionate and sad about it that there were loads of things that in previews, sometimes it was just so aggro. And I remember one of my friend's brothers coming and him just being really put off by it because I was really like, and the other thing with the... And so it was just kind of a gradual learning process of like, if you're going to do that, you have to undermine yourself and you have to undercut it. And one of my friends said something like that because he came to see it and he's just not really that politically minded. And he said, what you need to do is every time you set something up, you need to fuck with it. You can't because people will still know that you're earnest about it, but they won't come out feeling like they've been beaten up. They'll come out sort of feeling like, oh, that was lots of silly stuff. And I think... So then, yeah, it was just previewing, knowing that quite often when I'm doing, like, warm-up gigs, I just know there are bits that aren't funny enough, and this little desperate Mm. improvisational part of my brain will be like, add a punchline, do something, do anything. And so that's what I do. In In the editing process, could you give us an example of something that you have dropped from the show and why oh um what have i dropped um a lot of it is like bits that i thought were a good end to bits can i think of anything really big that i've dropped oh yeah well yeah at the start of the show i was gonna do five minutes about this is true i had a dream that i did a show in front of loads of people where i showed a chart that showed how unequal the wealth distribution in the united kingdom was and in the dream everyone was fucking outraged and then they all sorted it out (laughs) (laughs) And then I genuinely woke up and I was like, a prophecy, a prophecy. (laughs) Um, And so I had a few bits and bobs about trying to sort of, I had a bit about how to get people to feel powerful about politics is you all have to imagine that there's an imaginary revolution. Mm. Uh, You have to imagine, you know, the date of the upcoming revolution. So like now it'd be like September 30th or whatever. And you have that in the back of your mind. And so whenever you're talking to someone who's trying to put your opinions down or whenever you're watching like really Tory biased media, you can be like, well, we'll see how they do on the 30th of September. (laughs) (laughs) And... Both of those things were to sort of try and, like, judge people along a bit. But it just sort of transpired that the more I did the show, the more I was like, it's not relevant for me to do five minutes at the beginning about... Because I thought I was going to start the show, do five minutes about politics that was, like, the cleverest, best, well-researched thing I'd ever written, where I, like, took to task wealth inequality in the UK. And I was like... And in my head, I thought it would be, like, a spoken word rap thing, where I was like, and another thing, and the Duke of Cornwall, what a cunt, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then, like, throw the mic down and then be like now my show and then I just sort of realised that like you don't need to prove anything like that like if I want to write a show where I literally just come on and go I've got my heart broken and I want to talk about it I can just do that like it does it's not my concern if people are like expecting a certain thing from me like it's a delight if people expect something from me I suppose but like it's like I should just do what it is and not so I sort of got rid of all well not all of it there's I'd like to think there's a political thread in it but I got rid of all the things that were ostensibly just like, this is politics and not relevant. And Mm. it's kind of a thrill to do it, actually, to cut it away and go, no, this show isn't about politics. And and also because me and my friend set up a charity, so I feel like on a daily basis I'm doing something useful. So I don't feel like I need to prove that I'm political necessarily to people. Like, I don't mind. I, I, I don't think... I don't know. I sort of feel like for three years I was like, I'm a socialist, I'm a socialist, I'm a socialist. And so now I'm like, uh, I also enjoy outdoor pursuits. (laughs) 
wanted to talk about the development of your audience over the last seven shows, because you are someone I think of as having a real following. Like people oh, really thanks. know what you, they really want to know what you're going to do next. And that's they, my dream. I would absolutely yeah. love that. Well, I think that's part of what they res, part of what they respond to. At least is you're so kind of like I've made you a thing. I'm just constantly yeah. giving you not just physical objects, you know, stories and stuff. It, it's for you, and I'm putting it out there. And do you think that is you know? Do you feel that you have kind of uh, uh, mustered your own gang? And if so, how did you do that? And why do you think they're, they're so up for it? Um, I sort of think yes and no, because it's funny, right? The first few shows I wrote, it felt really easy to be like, these people have all come to the show. And, then, and it felt really coherent in my head. I was like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then by the time I got to this show, I'm like, oh, I'm like a band that's released 10 albums. And so it's like most bands, you'd be like, oh, I really like that one. I can't be fun. I'll wait a few years. I'll get the next one. You know, like okay. if you sort of keep producing that much. That's out. quite shrewd to have that over that eye on, on the possibility of that not, you know, the possibility of that happening. Yeah, I think, well, I think people will dip in and out because you can't spend 10 years of your life being like, I must go every year to see that person. But there's a very small, small group of people who have seen every single one of my shows and, oh my God, they get smaller by the year as well. Because <laughs> I kill them. But it's, no, it's, it, it's, it makes me very happy. The way that I started with my first Edinburgh show was because I was in a venue that was run by my old manager and he's quite kind of, he's quite a wide boy really. And I think he would take that kindly yeah. as well. But like he, um, he was like, well, you can give us as many tricks as you want. We just want to get the right people in and get word of mouth. Right. So the first week of this show, I just went around and I looked at who looked cool. <laughs> and then I got to like cool young dudes and be like, excuse me, would you come to my show? And then I was quite lucky because it, it would often be like young comedians that I would like the look of and be like, please come. And then, and they sort of came in. I, I feel like, I think it was very lucky, as I say, to start touring really quickly. And I think I did get a few little bits and bobs of like TV exposure every now and again. And so because it seemed to have quite a distinct aesthetic and because I was always quite open about like, I like these films, I like these books, I like mm. this stuff. I think it did mean that people who shared interest with me could find me and stuff. And I do think because I was quite relentless with touring, like every year touring, 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 mm. um, it did mean that people could know to come back and it could build a little bit. Um, I think the way I've built my crowd... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how consistent or real it is either. Like, I wouldn't say that I'd ever feel like I'm in a position where, like, I'm like, I'm safe, mate, or anything like that. Mm. Like, it's, you know, it's not many people we're talking about. Like, especially, for example, in Hay on Why, where it's 10 people, 10 people in Hay on Why. And if we're a nine hour round trip, there's 10 people. And uh, they didn't even give us a meal at the venue. That was the worst part. Um, but I, um, uh, I don't know. I think maybe just because I'm quite open about the books and the music that I love. So mm. then that is a sort of community of people to share with. And I do quite a lot of crossover things with music. Like I've got a lot of friends who are in bands and do gigs with them and stuff and like done music festivals and stuff like that. But I don't know. Um, it's been a bit funny. I'll tell you what was funny, doing pol politics stuff. I definitely felt like there were a contingent of people I lost and a contingent of people I gained. Okay. And that was very interesting. Yeah. And, and also it's sort of like not wanting to lose people's respect. And stuff. Did that hurt though, to feel like, you know, people who were interested in what you had to say, when you changed what you were saying, they went, oh, maybe we're not so interested anymore. Well, it did and it didn't, but you can't please everyone consistently year on year. That's the thing that I have to like always tell myself is like, you just don't know what someone's going to prefer that you did. Like if I think about it, like there's a, 
a musician that I really love called Bill Callahan. I think he's amazing. He's made like, I probably have seven favourite Smog albums that he's made. And recently he's made a couple of albums that I've just not been feeling in the same way. But it doesn't mean that I don't love him. I just will keep buying what he buys sure. and eventually it'll be all right, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but, and so I just sort of feel like you just can't tell who's going to like what bit. And mm. I just have to, I can only do what I think is the best possible thing that feels genuine and honest and real. Because I'm also quite shit with my attention span. Like, I like to do what I'm... I like to be involved with my thing and do it, and then I get bored of it and I want to do a new thing. So I just can't try and pander. Cause, and that was the other thing, like, with being a proper comic. I've never felt... Like, somebody said to me, like, oh, there's two types of comedians. There's comedians that work out what the audience wants and do that, and then there's comedians that work out what they want and do that. And I've always been the second type because I just don't know what the crowd want. And when I try and do what they want, it never works. So I have to do what I want. And so that's the only way to sort of try and keep it. So it is funny. But I sort of think, fuck it, people drop away. Like, this is what I thought of politics. I thought, people have said that I should be murdered for doing stuff about how much I hate it when I kill snails accidentally on the pavement. So I might as well say that David Cameron should be murdered because I've already got... Uh, maybe that's a bad... That's a really controversial... <laughs> but I might as well come out and say I'm a socialist and I'm not crazy for thinking that and it's not weird to be left-wing. It's normal to be left-wing. I'm not some crazy hippie. I might as well come out and say that. Because, because I've already they're not going to hate you anymore, yeah, yeah, yeah. are they? Yeah. People hate me for existing, so I might as well... So I don't really feel frightened by that. But what was funny is a friend of mine who's another comedian, though, my friend John Nick Roberts, said to me this week, he was like... Oh, I'm glad you're not doing politics anymore because my family can come and see it again. <laughs> and I was like, cool, I guess. Um, but I, I just think it's funny, like, because people try and pigeonhole you anyway. So then when I did politics, I thought that people would be like, oh, she's not whimsical anymore, she's political. And now they're like, oh, she's not political anymore. And it's just like, I'm just a person trying to do some stuff. Like, the, conti- the common factor in all of it is you anyway. So you just have to hope. Is that too... Yeah. It's not to anything. No, that's great. Uh, do we have any questions? We must wrap up fairly soon, but we've got time for one or two. Do you have any guidance for moving from the more silly stuff into the more personal stuff? Well, like, firstly, don't forget that you're allowed to be silly with it. Like, you can take that lightness into anything. So you can still play around, you can still imagine things. Like, I was thinking about a question you asked before, like, with writing and how do I bash about an idea? Like, I like to sort of really just ask as many questions as I can with it. Like, where would it go? What would it do in the future? What would it be? How would I do it? And, like, really sort of try and conceptualise as much as possible. And so if you're trying to think about, say you're writing about an experience you've had that was, like, a bad experience at school or something... You can still kind of treat it in a whimsical way, like in a fun, inventive way and kind of move your routine through that. Like there's a really brilliant... I was talking to my boyfriend about this yesterday. I've got a boyfriend, bad luck. I um, was talking to my boyfriend about this yesterday. There's a Dave Le Chappelle, Dave Chappelle routine. But mm. what does it mean to be 15? And okay. about how... And it's like one of my favourite routines in the world because it starts out, I think, very silly... And it's about a kidnapped girl, but it's also about a murdered little boy. And because the kidnapped girl is white and the murdered little boy is black, the 15 thing is treated like she's like this little Disney princess and he's like this criminal, you know. And the way he does that routine is like, starts out political satire. I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it basically goes, starts out really silly, goes crazy inventive silly, then suddenly is really really serious political satire and then is like heartbreaking makes a very important point with it and all of that is in the one routine and I think it's like really important to remember that like 
you can take it anywhere you want. And if you really feel what you're saying, if you really care about what you're saying, you just keep that as a through line and you're all right, I think. And also, like, you can get away with mad tangents and then just literally coming back and like, just going, so as I was saying this, people are like, oh, cool, we're back, all right. You know? <laughs> like, you can do all kinds of distractionary things as long as you feel like you've properly got the thread of it and the heart of it down. You can sort of do it. Um... I'd like to finish then. This is a, a classic wrap-up question. Um, what would be your final message to comedy? If you had to leave one message behind. I'd be like, thanks for having me. You've been the best friend in the world. I appreciate the fact that you've meant that I haven't had to get up and do shit-boring things. And I also have enjoyed the travel and the free food. Um, not in I Hay th- on Why. Yeah, not in Hay on Why. <laughs> I think I would, like, genuinely, like, I love... I love being a comedian. I see it as like a lifelong vocation and I'm thrilled about that. I'm thrilled that there are, you know, there are old lady comedians and that you can be and I'm thrilled that you can just be you and change it and be so um, skittish with it and like uh, do whatever you want. Like I honestly, what I think of with comedy is that I feel privileged to be part of the community and I hope other comedians listening to this don't think I'm a dickhead because like that's bad. But like I've, I've, I love I love being a part of it. Like, with Edinburgh, I love coming up and being like, I'm one of the comedians, you know. I, I really, um, so I suppose I'd be like, thanks, comedy. Give it... <laughs> Despite all of the cruelty you've given me and the insulin resistance, I still appreciate it. Given that you are... And this was, that should have been the last question, but it's just brought something up in my mind. Given that you are probably one of the least cynical comedians I know... <laughs> You must be aware on some level that there is a lot of cynicism amongst comedians. People, there's bitterness. There's people have been maybe doing it too long or doing it without achieving the success they wanted. Do you have anything you could say to... I mean, I know personally some of them will be listening to this. Do you have anything that you could say to help no, because they'll Reset be like, them. shut up, that fucking dickhead. No, they I might say. not, they might not. They might, if they listen to it on their own, they might go, oh, go on. I'm just, I, I'm thinking of a specific name who I'm certainly not going to name. But someone... <laughs> will you, will someone, you tell me after? I will tell you after. Someone might be listening to this and thinking, God, I wish I could... I, I've got really bitter, I've got really cynical. How can I get some of that? Okay, I am not somebody who is without cynicism or bitterness or anxiety or status anxiety. Like, obviously not. Like, like you were saying, like, and the idea that you'd be like, oh, you, you know what you're doing, you, you've been all right. And then I'm like, well, I'm not, like, on telly. I'm not sort of successful. I'm not. So I, I think you can't help sometimes just be looking at yourself and thinking, what am I doing wrong? That person got that and I didn't, or that person did this and I didn't, but... Uh, there's two things there's a quote by Bill Callahan my favourite musician which is bitterness is our lowest sin and a bitter man rots from within like it's no good for you and I had a quote in my I had a line in my old show which was you have to just try not to be bitter because no one ever says guess who I'm bringing on the expedition this bitter shriveled up old husk <laughs> like nobody says that no one's like oh they'll really bring down morale <laughs> like oh be, they'll be great you know it's, it's much better even if you have to fucking fake it just try and be hopeful and try and like I've what I love about especially with Edinburgh as well is somebody who people have never rated can come along and do an amazing Edinburgh show and people are like have you seen their show no their show's incredible are you serious yeah it's amazing and like I see it as like this wellspring of like you can always kind of create some sort of 
narrative or interesting thing around yourself that means that people will want to come and see you. You can always, something will happen to you sooner or later that you'll be excited about to write about that you'll think this is something I really desperately want to say and I think it's, you know, worth doing. And like, I think as well, like, just if you can try and enjoy your life, honestly, people will want to be around you more. <laughs> like, no one wants to be around someone who's like, did you hear? That person got two stars and there's Steve Bennett said this. Like, fucking Steve Bennett. But like... I don't like women. Sorry. <laughs> Steve, if you're listening, I don't mean it. But um, I, like, I just genuinely, if you can try to, like, the, the more positive you are, the better your life will be and the better your comedy will be. And, like, I'm not saying fake it. I'm just saying be honest. Like, life is difficult sometimes. You don't get what you want all the time. All that shit is true. But also, like, fuck's sake. It's, it's, a, it's good. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> is that helpful to them I'd also say like just don't look at what other people are doing like don't, if you're in Edinburgh don't read all the reviews because the second you do that you're like oh no what does that mean does that mean what like focus on what you can control and you can enjoy and what you can create like make up more gigs do more silly things take we did, me and my friends did this thing that I always go on about where we took a bus and we just performed to kids in bus shelters around the country it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me like if you do things ah oh, that's it I'm going on too much no go, go, go for it stand up is great because it's an end in itself it's not getting you telly. It's not getting you jobs. It's an end in itself. It's fucking brilliant on its own. If you like performing to 30 people in the room and you know you're going to do that till you die, you're all right, right? And that's the essence of being a stand-up to me is like knowing that you're never going to escape little gigs because that's what it is. And like stand-up's a magic, ephemeral thing that is in the moment, right? So you don't need to like be thinking about other things. Just enjoy it as an end in itself. I'm like, fucking be as zen as me. It's fucking great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Josie Long. So that was Josie. Thanks to her for coming on the show. Thanks, as always, to James Lowey, Pete Jones and Olivia Phipps, who was the pod gremlin for this show. Uh, This episode was recorded live at Bob and Miss Behaves Bookshop uh, under the Heroes of Fringe banner at Edinburgh 2014 and was co-produced by Nathan Wood. Now, if you're a comedian and you listen to this and you consider... That Now, look, in the past, I've said, if you've done about three shows, but I've got to underline this, that's kind of a minimum requirement unless I waive the rules. What we want from Comedians Comedian is a glimpse into the process of an expert comic, right? So it's not just a case of doing the hours. If you're asking to be on the show, you're basically saying, I consider myself an expert. Now, with that in mind, I know that some of you are experts, and I particularly love guests who know the show. So if you're out there, drop me an email or a tweet using the code phrase. You remember the code phrase. I'd be pleased to be introduced to your beautiful daughter and then I'll know that you're a process junkie and not just some kind of awful glory hound. What little glory there is I'm able to send your way, I don't know. Next week, the bloody brilliant Eleanor Tiernan. I've used brilliant again, but she totally deserves it. Uh, Bye for now. I'll speak to you then.